Good morning, everybody. It is a uh, privilege to get to be here today as we keep going through Isaiah. It's one of the one of the benefits of being one church in multiple congregations is that I can preach Isaiah 47 last week at Gateway and then come here and preach Isaiah 48 and it's kind of this, uh, uh, we're all going on the same path together and that's a real privilege. Uh, we're, one of the things I've noticed preaching through Isaiah and if you've been with us for a couple of weeks or, or even if you've read Isaiah before is it begins to feel redundant really fast. So if you've found yourself getting a little bored during the sermons, that's not just because because of the preaching. Sometimes the text begins to cycle through a bit, a bit, and, it, and there's really like this main point in this poem we're reading in Isaiah 40 through 55 that the, the author, Isaiah, is making the same point again and again and again, and it's, I'm going to crush your oppressors, you need to give up your idols, I am the only God, worship me. And he basically makes those same three points again and again and again in different ways with new images, new ways of saying those points, and fresh angles in on the same thing. And I grew up in a church where we heard heard the Bible taught, and I remember reading the Bible, especially in high school, and I'd read like Romans, and i go, this is nice because Paul is saying what he means. And then I would read uh, the, the poets, and I would say, I wish they all could just be more like Paul and say what they mean. What is with all this poetry and just feeling frustrated at like, why do I have, and, and I'm just not a very poetic person. My dad's a PE teacher, and my mom was a preschool teacher, so poetry wasn't exactly like in the, in the household language. Some of you are kind of predisposed to liking poetry, uh, but I've kind of had to go through a journey of realizing uh, why poetry is actually better than, than kind of naked prose. Like if I was going to tell you, so I have, a, I have a wife and I have two kids, three years old and one year old, but if I was going to describe to you my wife and I said, let me tell you about my wife. Her top speed is 13 miles an hour. She's five foot five and she, uh, you know, weighs 127 pounds. Do you guys feel like you know my wife? No, you you know nothing about my wife. I told you just the facts, the cold facts about her. But if I told you this, which I'm going to tell you, so I don't know why I said if I told you. When I tell you this, uh, there's like those moments in Arizona where it's like 67 degrees and you're in the shade and it's a little cold. And then you step out from behind the shade and the sun hits you and you feel like you're warmed all of a sudden, but it's like a pleasant. That's what it's like when my wife smiles at you. Now, if I said, what's more true, the poetry or the cold facts by themselves? Well, there's a way of saying the poetry is actually more true. It's more disarming. It's more revealing that these images, you inhabit them, and they, and they make sense of you and your world at the same time. And so uh, what we, what's actually difficult is that it requires imagination. It requires engagement. It requires more of us to engage with the, the, the poetry and the metaphors given to us in, in the scriptures than it does just to make sense of the facts and to line them up. And so uh, there's actually a lot lot of images in this text in Isaiah 48 and 49. So many that we're not going to be able to get to all of them. But the nice thing is if we don't get to all of them, we're still going to get to all of them because they're all making the exact same point. So uh, bear with me as we get there. But I'm going to highlight three major images that we see in Isaiah 48 and 49. Try to get into them. Try to help them. Try to allow them to change us as the Spirit moves through us and among us so that we can be a notch more faithful because these big ideas of I'm going to crush your oppressors, let go of your idols, I am the one true God, worship me. These are the exact same points that are made all the time. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to jump into Isaiah 48, and we're going to be moved by uh, the movement of God's word, all right? Lord, help us see you and see ourselves through this text. Amen. 
All right, so Isaiah 48, if you want to follow along with me, uh, there's, there's one of the things that's difficult or is often obscured by translation is, uh, is the way that different words are rendered on a regular basis. So in Isaiah 48, uh, the way it begins, Isaiah 48 verse 1 is, hear this, O house of, Israel, o house of Jacob, hear this. That word in the Hebrew is the word shema, which means listen up, pay attention. It's not just uh, hear with your ears, but it's hear with your guts, hear with your heart. Come up under this word, submit to this word, listen, pay attention. Submit yourself to this. Hear this, O house of Jacob. And actually, that word Shema, that word here, actually appears 12 times in Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 49, verse 1. Isaiah 49, verse 1 says, Listen to me, O coastlands, is actually the exact same word Shema. I don't know why the, uh, the ESV people translated one here and one listen, but that word's also translated 12 times, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Listen up, listen up, listen up, hear, hear, hear. And it's kind of difficult when it's the same word is getting pounded and pounded again and again and again. I'm going to show you a couple of these. Isaiah 41. Hear this, O house of Jacob. Isaiah 48, 3. It says, I announced to them. Isaiah 48, verse 5. I announced to them. Isaiah 48, 6. And you have heard. And he goes on to say, I announced. Uh, then he says, I have heard in 47. I have heard. You have heard in verse 48. Listen. So, and so these 12 different times throughout Isaiah 48 is the word Shema. It's translated here, announced, uh, uh, listen, uh, hear, proclaim, and it's all the exact same word translated in different ways. And it's this repetition of listen up, listen up, listen up. It makes me think of my three-year-old, uh, which uh, we really only get, he only really get disciplined at this point in my house for one thing, and it's not listening. Everything else is somehow a derivative of not listening. You punch your sister in the face, it's because you didn't listen to me, and you when I told you not to punch your sister in the face, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, 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 you broke into the cabinet and ate a bunch of cookies. It's not, you bro- you, you're disciplined because you didn't listen to me when I told you don't go into the cabinet and eat the cookies. So it's, you didn't listen. And it feels very much like um, what God's going on here. Listen up, here, listen. Pro- I'm saying this to you. I've said this to you multiple times. Here, here, here. And this is really rooted in this main metaphor here that he says, you all are blockheads. You're so obstinate, Isaiah 48, verse 4. I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is like iron sinew. You have a forehead of brass. I can't get through to you. Your skull is too thick. Your ears are too clouded. You just won't listen to me. Now, if you have ever been talked to like that, you kind of could say, I don't like your tone, sir. (laughs) My three-year-old has a bike, and we're out of her bike ride, and he's not allowed to just careen right through the crosswalk, but he does sometimes. It's like, so my son's name is Jay. It's like, Jay, Jay, Jay! And then he goes, he's halfway into the middle of the street crosswalk, he backs his bike up, then he starts crying. You scared me, Dad. I don't like your tone. (laughs) And there's a piece of me, it's like, Jay, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to save you. If you would listen to me when I went, J, 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 I wouldn't have to yell if you would have listened when I was being quieter. And it's not just like I'm yelling because I'm trying to work through my own anger at you and make you feel, I'm trying to get you to listen and pull back. And so when God is saying, you all are blockheads, you have foreheads of brass, my words aren't getting through, it's bouncing off. He's not saying that to be rude. He's not saying that to scare us. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm trying to save you. Pay attention. Listen to me. And here's what's difficult is so often like Isaiah 47, the way the chapter of that, the name of that title, the chapter, the title of that chapter is the humiliation of Babylon, that God is just, 
in Isaiah 47 ransacking the fact that he's going to embarrass and devastate and destroy the oppressors of Israel. And it's really easy for God's people to go like, yes, get them, them, those people. They are the problem. Those people out there, get them, Lord. Do it to those things. And he goes, hold on. And the exact next chapter from 47 to 48 is him going, not them, you, you, us, Redemption Gilbert. We are so prone to think the problem is them, the problem is those people, the problem is those, it's Babylon, it's out there. And Isaiah 48 is God speaking to his people, us, his people. He's not saying those Babylonians are poor listeners. He's saying, you, me, I'm including myself in this, us, we are the bad listeners. One of the biggest problems we face as a church is this deep belief that we have heard God perfectly and the people out there are the problem. You keep clutching your idols. You keep causing these problems because you won't listen. Uh, I, I work with uh, our counseling team, and I oversee some of our uh, counseling, like training and process, and we talked about this question. What makes someone a good listener? Like When someone says, oh, he's a good listener, she's a good listener, when someone says, oh, I'm a good listener, uh, you know what you've, don't you really find is adults who go like, I'm actually a bad listener. I hear adults say all the time, I'm a pretty good listener. I hear people describe other people as good listeners, but I never really hear, I hear people describe other people as bad listeners. And so we had this kind of dialogue. What makes someone a good listener? What makes someone a bad listener? And it's people who think that they are chronically at risk of misunderstanding or of being a bad listener that actually end up functionally being good listeners. Are you, I'm not sure I understand. Help me understand. And they're prone to asking questions. They're prone to presuming I might be a bad listener, therefore I have to work hard at being a listener. And I just want all of us to know that we all in the room are prone to being bad listeners. All of us. Me, you, us, God's people. This is not God saying, you're not my people if you're a bad listener. He's saying, you're my people and you're a bad listener. We have brass foreheads. You have brass foreheads. This is, this is part of like the foundation of humility, of being under the Lord, is going, I am prone to being a bad listener, therefore I will work at being a good listener. This takes work. God even says it's like, listen, listen, listen. What he's, the point he's getting at is, this is my glory, I won't share it. Let go of your idols, here, here, here. If you want to like understand what Isaiah 48 is, the summary of it, it's listen. Twelve times that word is given. But then the way it pivots, it, it kind of shifts. God's critiquing Israel, saying, you all are bad listeners. Don't, like, yes, go up from Babylon. Yes, free from Chaldea. Yes, however, I'm trying to get you to listen. There's no peace for the wicked. Isaiah 49, verse 1, it says, uh, listen to me, O coastlands. Wait a minute. I thought he was speaking Israel here. There's this pivot here. I'm not just talking Israel. I'm talking more broadly here. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He, so he goes from Isaiah 47, critiquing Babylon, Isaiah 48, critiquing Israel, to Isaiah 49, speaking to all people everywhere. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Now there's this person, this servant, who's called from the Lord, and the servant from the Lord is calling to all the people everywhere, saying, pay attention to me. In this uh, Isaiah 49, verse 3, it says, And he said to me, that is, the Lord said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I am glorified. And you kind of get this tension going on here. If you have Israel, 
uh, as God's servant, but also there's a servant who is ministering to Israel who's going to be glorified in Israel. And the servant goes on to say, Isaiah 49, verse 4, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is from God. You have some servant who's trying to minister to Israel who's questioning is what I'm doing in vain or not. Interesting. This goes on to culminate in this thing that the servant says this in Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back preserve Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. So I, uh, I have a buddy named Alex, and so um, I like to lift weights, and Alex was my weightlifting partner for like four years. And Alex is one of those people that if you are feeling good about yourself, you can go to the gym with him and then not feel good about yourself. He is a gigantic person. You know, I'm not, I'm not a weak person physically. I can, I can squat pretty good and deadlift pretty good. And I would be like grinding out my last sets of squats, and he would roll in 15 minutes late uh, and go up to my one rep max back squat and go like, are you done with this? I need to warm up. And he would like a piston in a, in a Lamborghini go up, down. Then he'd take the 55-pound plates, throw them on top of my uh, deal and proceed to work out. And I'm standing there like, dude, did you have to do that, man? You could have like waited till I walked away. And Alex, you know, he's a Division One middle linebacker, gigantic. If you saw him, you'd be like, that's Alex right there. I, I recognize him. He goes to Gateway, so you won't see him here today, I don't think. But anyway, he's, he's, a, he's a big guy. And it's just, he's just it's, it's such a waste of his time to warm up with lightweight, <laughs> that he sees what I'm doing, the hardest thing. He was like, it's just too light. And for a while, I'd be frustrated with him. Like, can you just like wait till I walk away before you warm up with my max here? That'd be, be good for me, be good for everybody here. Um, but then you realize like when you're as strong as Alex, it'd be a waste to do that. So he, you know, he squats like 600, 700 pounds, something like that. I don't really know what it is. It's unfathomable. Um, but here you, have, here you have this, Isaiah 49, that God says, it's too light. It's lightweight. And we understand this in context, that you have these neighboring nations, that the Babylonians have their gods that are these regional tribal deities, and the Babylonian gods save Babylon. And you have the Chaldeans with the regional tribal deities that have their gods, and the Chaldeans save and, and do it. You have the Egyptians. The Egyptians have their gods, and their gods save Egypt and serve Egypt. And you have Yahweh going, it is too light a thing that I would only save my people. These other fake gods, they save their own people. That's nothing. That's normal. That's standard God behavior. I'm not standard God. I don't do standard God behavior. I'm not going to just be the Egyptian God who just saves Egypt. I'm not going to be the Hebrew God who just saves the Hebrews. I'm not going to be... Uh, I, this is, it's too light. It's too easy. That's nothing. That's baby weight. I'm the real God. I'm the Almighty. I'm the, I'm the Lord of all the nations. This idea that I'm only preoccupied with my people is insane. That's, that would be a waste of my time. What is even the point of writing the story I'm writing if I'm only going to raise up the tribes of Jacob, if I'm only going to bring back preserved of Israel? No, no, no. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation reach the ends of the earth. This is not a regional, local thing. This is not a works for you thing. And so we, we, it's easy to look back on this time in the ancient Near East and go like, oh, those fools, they thought that there were these regional tribal deities. We're, we're not like that. We're, we're way more sophisticated. But we say it in different ways. We say, oh, that works for you and this works for me. 
We say, I worship God, but I understand that what you're doing works for you. And I want to understand here that part of what Isaiah is saying is if you don't understand the exclusivity and the totality and the magnificence of the exclusive God of Israel, then you don't know the God of Israel. That we can't say Buddhism works for you, we can't say Islam works for you, we can't say secular humanism works for you, because it doesn't work for anybody, because just like Egyptian God doesn't work for Egypt, that the Babylonian God does not work for Babylon, that the Chaldean God does not work for Chalcedon, also, so we understand that Yahweh's over and above all of these false and lesser gods. One of the ways we need to understand this text and submit to what Isaiah is doing is that just like the ancient Near Eastern Israelites were tempted to believe that, is, that Yahweh was just for us and those other people can do what works for them. So also we today are tempted to think Jesus is just for us and other people can do what works for them. No. Part of submitting to the revelation of God in the scriptures is submitting to the fact that he says, I am exclusive, I am total, I am Lord, there is no other that all other lesser gods are not gods. They're carried about like an iPhone. And I understand why we want to say, hey, what works for you works for you, what works for me works for me. It's because we, we want to like have a kind of a, a humility. Like, I'm not saying I know everything. I'm not saying I've, I haven't researched every single world religion. I don't want to like presume to speak beyond my experience or expertise. And so there's, there might be a seed of humility that drives that instinct. But ultimately, that's actually not humility. That's just insecurity. We need to understand here that it is true to say that God cannot be fully known, but it is also true say that God can be truly known. Just like with my wife, I know her truly, but I don't know her fully. Like, knowing someone fully is a lifelong, eternal project, but it's also God is infinite, I'm finite. I can't know God fully, but I can know him truly, especially insofar as he's revealed himself in his word. That it's actually loving to bear witness to reality, to help people see and understand that all these lesser gods don't work. We're not saying that to try to scare you. We're not saying that to try to uh, make you feel bad. We're saying that to try to save you. If you don't like the tone, look past it and listen to the message. <laughs> it's too light. Isn't that crazy that God that we serve, it's like it'd be too easy just to save some people. It'd be too easy to save a certain type of people. It'd be too easy to save uh, just people who are likely to be saved. It'd be, too, it'd, it'd be so easy, it's not even worth my time. I'm gonna do something bigger, something more weighty, something more significant. The last thing we got here is in Isaiah, it goes on to talk about this servant that's gonna uh, be a light to the nations, that through them they're gonna uh, make the, this stuff known. And God says, I'm going to, uh, the, the scripture we just had read, the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 49, verse 14 it says, But there's this resistance, there's a pause. Zion, another way of talking about Israel, kind of more of an emphasis on the place than on of the people group. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Now, hold on a minute. We just listened to this multiple chapter dialogue of how God is going, I'm going to crush your oppressors. I'm going to set the captives free. I see what Babylon is. I'm going to expose their, 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 fall, their, their folly. Uh, I, I see you all. You're not listening to me. You're like blockheads. I can't get through. You have all these defense mechanisms up. Twelve times I'm going to say, listen, listen, listen. I'm coming after you. I'm pursuing you. And then you still have Israel going, 
The Lord has forsaken me. I, I have a hard time knowing how to like interact with uh, kind of like super chronically insecure, like a, like I think about like kind of Eeyore syndrome, you know what I mean? Like I have a lot of friends who kind of from time to time are prone towards like an Eeyore syndrome, you know? It's like there's a rain cloud and it's only on you, you know? And it's like nobody likes me, nobody loves you. And I'm like, I'm at lunch with you right now. What do you mean nobody cares about you? <laughs> Unless I'm nobody, then sure, fine, you know? Um, I'm just called to ask you how you're doing. You're like, nobody cares about me. He's like, am I nobody? Like, I don't really know. Like, it's frustrating when you're like trying to love someone and they're like, nobody loves me. And you're like, what am I doing? Okay, I'll just, I, I, I empathize with the servant. And it's like, everything I'm doing is in vain. Well, I might as well just like not do it. Uh, and so, but how does God respond? It's interesting, like this kind of prone to poutiness. Like I get super frustrated when other people are like that. And at the same time, I'm sometimes like that. Nobody likes me. No, thanks for noticing, you know, and it's this, but it is like, come on, God's people. We're, we're like, God is writing this beautiful story, writing us books, He's ministering to us by his word, and we still are kind of prone to this pouty, God forgot me. And it's pretty common, a whole bunch of the Psalms, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, even like Jesus on the cross, you know, so maybe I should be a little more gentle on this stuff. He's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like, has he? What's going on here? Uh, but here's how God responds here. And it's my, but Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Now, again, when I'm in an unhealthy place, I'm like, you idiots, I have not forgotten you, stop it. Uh, but it doesn't really work. You know, it's, it's not, it was encouraging. But here you have God, the Father, being way more gentle than that. Um, 49.15, can a woman forget her nursing child? The rhetorical answer to that is no. I mean, you're like, I've been pretty sleepy sometimes. Well, and you know, like, on kid number three breastfeeding, you know, it's like, I kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, so... Uh, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? He goes, even they might forget. Like, I, I, know, I know what it's like to, like, I, I have empathy for, like, the sleeplessness of kind of someone who's working through this stuff. They might forget. I guess technically a woman could forget a nursing child, um, but I will not forget you. He's like, I, so this is, this is called a, the God who describes himself as father is even secure enough in his fatherliness to describe himself as maternal from time to time. Uh, he's, he's not so like, I need to be uh, hyper He's like, there's something maternal to the way the Lord treats us and cares for us and nurses us and holds us. And he says, I will, I will not forget you. Like, I'm, I'm even better than like the best mother. Verse 16, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. It's interesting thing about engraving. You know, I have a couple of tattoos, and I remember I got my, my wedding band tattooed, and a bunch of tattoo artists won't do any tattoos on your hands or fingers because your hands, like, sweat so much and the skin regenerates so often that they expect, especially, like, on your palms, if you got a tattoo on the palm of your hand, they expect, it, like, it's not going to last very long, like, maybe a couple years max, and so it's, like, bad for the brand to do tattoos on your hands. Uh, so he doesn't say, like, I, I tattooed you on my hands. He says, I engraved you, meaning, like, I carved it with a knife. Like, tattoos might fade on your palms, uh, but scars would not fade on your palms. I don't know if any of you have scars on your hands, but they don't fade. It's not like a tattoo that fades or drifts away or goes away. You can write in Sharpie your, your 
a laundry list, you know. Uh, you know, like now I have my notes app on my phone. Whenever my wife sends me to the store, I like follow that thing around like the Bible, you know, like get all this stuff, you know, and somehow I still forget stuff. Uh, but man, if you have it carved on your hand, it's with you everywhere you go. Like your hands are one of the main things you see of your body. There's lots of parts of your body you don't see very well, like, um, but the, your hands you see really well. He's like, I, I didn't carve you, you know, on my bicep. I didn't carve you, you know, on my on your oblique, I didn't carve it on the inner thigh, I, right here. I see it all the time. That even when my hands sweat, even when my things regenerate, you're right here all the time. I think about you all the time. And I've taken steps to think about you all the time. Do you think about how often God thinks about you? It's kind of weird, right? Like if I saw you, it's like, I've been thinking about you. You'd be like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, you find out some people think about you more than you think about you, and that feels kind of almost weird or creepy sometimes. Uh, it's called a stalker, you know. <laughs> you know, or, you know uh, unless it's someone that you like, then it's called thoughtful. You know, that's a fine line, I guess. <laughs> fine line. I've been thinking about you. Like, do you think about how God thinks about you? That the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, eternal one like, one of the problems, if I was thinking about you all the time, you'd be like, shouldn't you be thinking about someone else more than thinking about me? Don't you have a wife and kids? Like, don't you have, like, other people you should be thinking about besides me all the time? Uh, and so, like, I kind of should be thinking about my wife and kids a lot more than I think about anybody else. But that's because I'm limited, because I'm human, I'm finite. I can only think about stuff so much. But God, who's omnipotent, omniscient, he can think about everybody all the time. He can think about you all the time, and it doesn't mean that he should be doing something more important with this time. Because to him, you are a good use of his thought life. You're a good use of his creative energy. You're a good use of his preoccupation. And he's going, look, my people, I have carved you in my hands. I will not forget you. Your, your walls, that is like uh, the thing that would protect or separate Israel from the, the, the attacks. Like, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. You're on the front of my mind all the time. Like, I'm thinking about you all the time. That even when my, I have like these like sweaty scars on my hand, the scars that I've carved on purpose thinking about you, this serves my serving you. I think that a lot of our uh, proclivities towards sin, I think a lot of our insecurities, I think a lot of our uh, pathologies, so much of our even just infighting and dysfunction we have as a church, both locally and globally, that if we actually meditated on and thought about and dwelt on the fact that God thinks about me all the time, that he's having thoughts about me, Seth Trout, right now as I'm teaching. He's going to be thinking about me, Seth Trout, later when I take a drink of water and drive home. He's going to have thoughts about me, Seth Trout, when I'm, when I'm sinning, when I'm repenting, when I'm in denial, when I'm angry, when I'm sad. He's thinking about me, thinking about my life. He's thinking about me, feeling my life. He's thinking about me, planning my life. And so much of personal security. So if you like look at like attachment scientists or neuroscientists or we're talking about like where does like personal security, like you meet people who are secure in themselves, people are insecure in themselves. And a lot of what like, like the scientists or the research people will say is that to be in the mind of another understood and loved is the source of security. Like when you have a parent figure or a spouse who you know that you're in their mind, that they actually know you accurately and they actually love you. That's a lot of the source of individual and personal security. 
And I'm telling all of us that if we understand that we are perfectly known and perfectly loved in the mind of God all the time, that we are ever before him, our, our persons and our thoughts and our problems, that ought to produce a greater sense of personal security than even just if you had a good dad or a good mom or a good pastor or a good spouse or a good brother or a good sister or a good small group leader or a good... Like, I think some of you need to go home today and write on your mirror or write on your dashboard, God is thinking about me. Because he is. Now that could be a problem because there are also people I think about all the time and I think about them all the time because I don't like them and I wish they would stop existing. So <laughs> the next question is, what types of thoughts is he having about me? That's a big one. Is he thinking about like, oh my gosh, that guy embarrassing me in front of, oh God, what a... Uh, what types of thoughts is he having? And this is, so I'm reading this text, getting ready to preach, and uh, some, some of these Old Testament verses, I'm just telling you, they are gritty, okay, gritty. I'm gonna read some stuff here. This is Isaiah 49, verse 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant and be rescued? God's positioning himself as like, I'm the lion of Judah, and I just killed this thing and some hyena is going to try and take it from me? Yeah, right. Thus says the Lord, uh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken to pray that the tyrant be rescued, for I'll contend with those who contend with you. That Babylon might have killed you and taken you, but I'm the Lion of Judah. I can take you from them. Don't worry about that. And in verse 26 it says this, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, Ooh. and they shall be drunk with their own blood. As with wine, that is aggressive. You're being oppressed, I'm going to make them eat their own flesh. They're going to get drunk on their own stuff. And you go, oh my goodness, that is, that is, a, that is serious stuff. So we know what God thinks about the oppressors. We know that God is merciful to his own people. But here's what's crazy. You talk about being too light, talking about lightweight, talking about God not wasting his time. Is Jesus references this text and applies this text a couple of different times, especially in John 6 or in, in the book of Matthew, was when he says, look, Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You go, hold on a second here. I thought God was going to make the oppressors eat their flesh and the oppressors drink their own blood. But God is going, even the oppressors I can save. Even the oppressors I can redeem. Even those who are against my people, I can save them too. That God is thinking redemptive thoughts about all people, not just the oppressed. About all people, not just Israel. About all people, including the oppressors. God says in, in, through Paul in Romans chapter 2 that the true Jew is one who praises God inwardly, not one who is outwardly Israelite, one who from the heart worships God, and that can include the entirety of the nations. And so I want us to understand here that if Christ Jesus himself can say, look, the punishment that is due to the oppressor, I'll take onto myself. The punishment that is due to the idolater who is oppressed, I'll take that onto myself. That the thoughts I think about you are, are covered and filtered and seen through my substitutionary death here on the cross. That the threats that God makes to the oppressor, he even takes upon himself and says, I can save Babylon too. That the idolatry and the punishment that's due to Israel, the Lord God says, I can save Israel too. That it's too light to just be for one group. It's too light to be just for the oppressed. It is too light to just be for the oppressor that I will be the one who stands in the place and receives the judgment for all people who will worship and praise my name, period, no exceptions. That even the threats 
of judgment that are given against the nations. Christ Jesus, the substitute for sin, is willing to bear those into himself. That if anybody will confess with their heart and believe that Jesus is Lord, they can be saved. That the promises of grace and comfort are not just for ethnic Israel, but they are for all people who will praise God and really from their hearts. And so if you've been an oppressor, if you have been oppressed, if you have been idolatrous, if you have been left, if you have felt like God has forgotten you, the good news is that your emotions don't always tell you the truth about reality. They tell you the truth about how you're experiencing reality, but the truth about reality is that God is just and the justifier of the sinner, of the oppressed and the oppressor, and there are no people who are outside the scope of God's grace if they will just repent and believe in Jesus. And that means good news for all of us. And so I hope that as we walk out of here today and as we cling to the risen Lord, that we will see the fact that God not only thinks about us all the time, but he thinks gracious, good things about us all the time because of his blood. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us. I pray that you'd get through our hard heads and get to our hearts and take us captive by your grace. Amen.